0: Well, I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be here with you, whether you're watching live or later recorded, and I'm happy because I get the privilege of telling you some really good news. And this is it in a nutshell. The good news is God loves you, God sees you, God wants you, and there is absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. He will chase you, he will pursue you, and he will find you. And no matter what you do or what you don't do, what you say or what you don't say, what you think or what you don't think, whether your theology is absolutely perfect or totally in rags, he is after you and you can't stop him. And I got a great story to tell you to give you an example of that. But before we do, I want to ask you this question. If you had an opportunity to ask God anything, you got one question, what would you ask him? I I know many of us would ask questions like, uh, God, why did you let this happen? Or God, how come this didn't happen? And how come I'm in this situation right now? Or why didn't I get that thing that I wanted? Or how come I had the parents I had? All these questions, all of them, we all ask them. But they're actually rooted from a much deeper question. And we're going to look at that today. Well, we're going to go over... John 4, 1 through 27, which is the, uh, G, the woman at the well. Most of you, if you grew up in a church, you know the story, but I challenge you to, uh, to hold what you think you know about the story loosely, because there are some things that take place that we in our 21st century Western culture, we don't… We don't see like somebody, if they were in the first century watching it unfold or hearing the story, there would be things they would see and pick up from it that we just naturally don't because we didn't grow up in the first century and we're not Jews and we're not Samaritans and we're not Romans. So let's take just a few moments here at the beginning to go over three different topics and kind of bring ourselves up to speed culturally and historically. So we need to talk just a moment about Jews and rabbis, and then we need to talk about Samaritans, and then we need to talk about women in the first century. So first one, Jews, rabbis, that sort of thing. Well, in the first century, Jews lived under the rule of the Romans. And they looked to their scripture, to the Old Testament, that said this whole land was supposed to be theirs, yet now they were all compressed to this little area of Judea and that it was all ruled from the top north all the way to the south and way beyond by the Romans. And the Jews looked at the Romans as evil occupiers of the Holy Land. So they didn't want to have any dealings with them. And to frame Rome, th- this is how Rome would conquer. At first, it was all military. But as Rome got stronger, and especially by the first century, Rome would go bring an army to the edge of the new territory they want to conquer. They'd send some envoys into that new territory, speak to the king or the ruler of that group and said, hey, look, you got two choices here. Choice number one, we come in, we kill everybody in your army, we kill you and your family, then we take everybody that's alive, enslave them, bring them back to Rome, and we sow all your fields with salt, so in case we miss somebody, they can't do anything with this land. Or, behind curtain number two, you say, okay, we'll become part of the Roman Empire, you get to keep your position, but you'll be a governor, your kingdom will now be a province, and there's really only two things you have to do now. You have to pay taxes to Rome, and you have to worship Caesar as if he was God. Now, for most groups, most cultures, they were already worshiping a bunch of gods, so they didn't care about the Caesar as God, who knows, maybe it'll actually help them. And the taxes, ah, its frustrating, but everybody already pays taxes, so they would comply. The Jews, though, were a thorn in the side of Rome, because the Jews would say, no, we're not paying evil occupiers of the holy land that's supposed to be ours. We're not going to give them money, willingly, in order to occupy us more, to strengthen their ability to occupy. And there is no way we're going to worship Caesar, because there is only one God. And so the Romans kept putting new people in charge of this area of Judea and would swap people out. By the time of Jesus' day, it was Pilate, and he would pull his hair out, trying to figure, how do I deal with these Jewish people? It's really simple. Pay taxes, worship Caesar, and do whatever the else you want to do. But the Jews wouldn't do it. And the Romans hated the Jews. They made it difficult for them to trade, difficult for them to do business, difficult to experience the benefits of the greater Roman Empire. And the Jews isolated themselves, created their own subculture to try to maintain their identity as the chosen of God. Well, there's also another group here called Samaritans. You may wonder, you've probably heard the term, but may wonder where they came from. Well, to figure out where they came from, we actually have to go way back even more in time. Back to 900 B.C. when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes the new king. And he's a young guy, and so he decides, I'm going to go talk to the wise, my dad's wise, older wise advisors. And the advisors say to him, look, Rehoboam, the people have been worked really hard by your father to build out this beautiful kingdom. If you say to them, it's a time of rest now, let's just enjoy the fruits of our labor, take ease and live life and enjoy, they will follow you to the end of your life. So he thought, okay, I'll think about that. And he goes to his young buddies. Who are about to start ruling with him. And he says to them, hey, what do you think I should do? And they say, well, you got to show who's the man. you got to show them who's in charge. So you go out and you tell them, hey, you know, I know my dad would like whip you to get you to work. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. You thought you worked hard. Now you're going to even work harder than you ever imagined. And when he He chose to go with his young friends, and when he made that announcement, there were 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of those tribes said, we're out, and they left. They went up north, and they stopped coming to Jerusalem to worship, even though you were supposed to only worship in the temples, but they went back up north, and they said, look, let's find different places to worship. I mean, we have... We have altars built by Abraham. We have Jacob's well, which is a holy place because the miracle well, it wasn't even supposed to have water, and it has water. So we'll go do our worship in these high holy places. And those two tribes down south, they can just do what they want. Well, eventually the Assyrians came in because the kingdom was divided and weakened. The Assyrians came in, captured all those 10 tribes of the north, force them to intermarry, to, to integrate into their culture. Some of them worship their gods, but many of them held on to the idea of one God, but they got confused in their theology, and they mixed stuff together, but they were still desirous in seeking this God that would unify them and deliver them. Well, the Jews, they eventually were captured too, but they held on to their Judaism, their bloodline. And by the time we get to the time of Christ, the Jews looked at the Samaritans and said, do you know why we're in this mess? Do you know why we the Babylonians got us and now we're occupied by Rome? It's because of you all. You all left, weakened the kingdom, and now all this oppression— is because of you. Plus, you think you're following God and you know nothing about Him. You, haven't, you don't come to the temple. And the rabbis of the day, the Pharisees, would teach the Jews, look, you can't even touch a Samaritan. If you touch a Samaritan, you become unclean. So, you can't touch them, you can't do commerce with them, you can't do anything with them. And the Jews, whenever they're around a Samaritan, they would make sure the Samaritan knew you are less than us. So, the Samaritans settled in an area called Samaria, and that's where they kind of picked up this name, Samaritans. Now, Last group we need to look at is uh, women. And women, not just in Rome or in Judaism, but all over the world, women were second class citizens. Men would not speak to a woman, a, a single woman in public. You wouldn't speak alone with a woman because the culture would look very bad at that. They'd figure something's going on between you two, so just to save face and to have proper appearance, you wouldn't have private conversations outside with a woman. The other thing is uh, women were viewed as property. They were the property of their father, and they stayed at home until they were married, and they became the property of their husband. So the if you had good men, that could be a good situation, in that the abuse would be minimized. But if you had evil men, they could take incredible advantage of a woman. And so women suffered greatly in this system. In fact, all, it, it's interesting how this changed through the centuries was really, because of part of the story we're gonna read now, and Christianity. Christianity was the equalizer of religions of Jew, Gentile, male, female. It's the one that said, we're all equal as Paul brought about. Anyway, and the way Jesus treated women frustrated the people around him, because he kept making them as important as the men. Well, women had a had a tough time. So now, we're going to jump in and let's see what the Bible has to say about the woman at the well. John 4 starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now in first reading, you might think, oh, he had to pass through Samaria because it was the shortest distance. And indeed it was. So you had here at the bottom, you had Judea, then you had Samaria, and then on top of that, you had Galilee. So it was the shortest distance, but almost no one took that route because that route was deserty, it was dry, it was riddled with bandits, and the only people who really took that were Romans with entourage. So most people would either go out to the west and just go up the ocean, go up the seaside along the Mediterranean, or the real preferred route was to go along the Jordan River, and you would would miss Samaria. Now for a Jew, there was no choice. Because you can't associate with Samaritans, so you would never go through Samaria to get to Galilee. So the Jews would almost always take this Jordan route, and it was shaded and lots of places lots of ways to find food and lots of people, so it was safe. And when Jesus said to them, Hey, we're gonna go to Galilee, I'm sure the disciples were now pretty excited, thinking this is going to be great, a beautiful trip along the Jordan. And then when he told them, no, we have to go through Samaria. I, I imagine the disciples had a little discussion with Jesus around, okay, Jesus, you know, you're real good about the God Bible thing, but you're not so good about geography. And you know there's a lot of bandits. You know there's, it, it's dry and hot. And you know... Going through there, we were bound to run into some Samaritans. But of course, Jesus being Jesus, they followed him and they go. So now, verse 5. So he came to the town, uh, to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. So Jesus shows up. And and again, since we don't recognize the culture, we don't realize there was probably a conversation between the disciples and Jesus. When Jesus said to them, hey, I'm just going to hang out here at the well. You guys go on and go get some food. They said, Jesus, we can't, we can't leave you here by yourself. Look, you have your, your robe over your garment. I mean, you look like a rabbi. You definitely look Jewish, and you look like a rabbi. We can't, it's just not safe. You go, I'll stay here. Now, enter the Samaritan woman. She's walking up to the well, and we, hear, we learn from here it's the sixth hour. And the way, the way uh, back in those days you would tell time, sunrise would be zero, and so one hour after sunrise would be the first hour, second hour. So it's a sixth hour, so we can think around noon or so. So it's the hottest time of the day. Culturally, all the women would get water in the morning. In fact, it was a pretty important time. It was a social event, and only the women would go. It would be a time for them to leave their households, even leave the children, and come together and just talk. They'd, they'd be getting water, but they'd also… It's, it would be like women getting together now and going and having coffee or having tea going out for drinks. It's that time where they get to talk in a way they can't talk when the guys are around. So this was a very special bonding community. And here's this woman who's not getting water in the morning with the rest of the women. And why is that? The fact to the first century mind, when they see this woman coming at noon, this is what would go through their head. Ooh, something's wrong with her. She she is not welcome with the other women. Because there's only one reason she'd be coming at noon and not early in the morning when it's cool. And why is that? We're going to learn a little later why that is. And it's really because she's had five husbands and now she's living with her six. The sixth guy she's with isn't even her husband. And so there's something. Apparently guys are attracted to this person, but the women have shunned her. And it's either, you know, she stole some of their husbands, she's, they just don't like that kind of woman, uh, jealous of what men are seeing her. I, we don't know the specifics, but we know there's a division. So here she's coming to the well, expecting it, no one there, and she looks up and she sees a Jewish rabbi sitting by the well. And I'm sure as she walked up, she went, oh, great, a Jew, and probably a rabbi. And in her mind, she wrestled with, should I just turn around and go back to the, oh, the village? Is, it's like a 15-minute walk back to the village. I'm not, I'm not going to go back there without water. Well, I know this. I can go up there. He most likely won't even say anything. I'm certainly not going to say anything to him. I'll get my water. I'll leave. We'll be done with it. So she walks up. As she walks up and tying her jug to the, to the rope to lower it down, they had these pots with handles on them, and you tie them the pots are kind of expensive because they hold water. Things that would actually hold water took some engineering in those days and they were kind of pricey. That's why there was nothing there at the well. You had to bring your own. So you tie the handle of the jar, lower it down, and I'm sure he's in the process of doing that. And this is what you, I love the way he does this too. Give me a drink. No real please or just ordering her. And it tells us that he's alone here, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, I'm sure in her mind, she's sitting here thinking, oh, yeah, just like a Jew, ordering me around, thinking I'm his servant. Uh, I'll fix this. I'll take care of this. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And the parenthetical here reminds us, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She basically turns and snaps at him and reminds him, this isn't how this goes. And it's certainly not how it goes with me now all she said were facts right but you know when you do this right you're just saying facts but what you're really saying is back off don't push it you're going to have something to pay for if you do your words are the right words but the energy the push behind it is go away leave me alone don't enter here Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, that's what she was doing here. So she snaps at him. Most of us, and we've, have you ever had anybody snap at you? I I sure have. And when that happens, what wells up inside of us? Who are you to, to, what is your problem? I'm just, all I asked you for was something to drink. And you're getting water anyway. I don't know what this thing you got going is, but calm down. That's what wells up, because when somebody pushes on us, it, we feel attacked, and we feel like, no, you can't treat me that way, and I'm going to make you pay the way you think you're going to make me pay. Well, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He, uh, Jesus, when he looks at us, he sees past the outside. He sees past all the things that we're constantly calculating about somebody. Whether it's their economic status, whether it's the tone, how much melantona they have in their skin, whether it's the country they come from, the belief system they have, these are all things that we're constantly vetting and filtering about other people so that we can say, okay, this is how I'll navigate this person then. Jesus did none of that. He saw her wound and saw past the rudeness. It, it meant nothing. Well, she, uh, she looked at him and, and I'm guessing thought, oh great, some Jews teaching me about living water, what, I, I, these Jews are nuts. I, 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 don't, I have nothing to learn from this man. So she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, Uh, and the well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? So so this first part is her basically saying, need I remind you, you have nothing, and you're sure as heck not going to use mine. So how are you going to get this water? I don't know. Now she, she, she throws what she thinks is kind of the final punch to make him go away. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. For a Samaritan to say that Jacob was their father was fighting words to a Jew. Because a Jew would sit there and go, Jacob is not your father. I don't know who your father is because you're all messed up as far as bloodline. Jacob's my father. He's part of my heritage, but he's certainly not yours. So she knew when she said, our father Jacob, the father of the Samaritans, that this would be the end, especially for any rabbi. Probably he's just going to get up and walk now. So, Jesus, not looking but past this, seeing something past this, he says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I, I love how he does this because her whole need for going there in the first place was to get water. I'm sure this was a very frustrating part of her day, trying to grab water and meter it through the rest of the day, trying to grab it at noon and know that she'll have enough for noon the next day before she goes and gets more. So for him to talk about water, that, he's... He's speaking to what she wants, but what he's really trying to get to is what she needs. And she doesn't quite know what she needs yet. I also wonder, I don't know because it's not in the text, but at this point and the next thing she says is interesting to me because I almost wonder if in her mind she went, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I see what's happening here. I know men. I know how they work. This guy, sitting here talking to me alone and everything, still being nice to me even though I'm being mean to him, he he might, uh, this might be husband number six, who knows? So she says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water again. Kind of that, uh, okay, if we're reading between the lines here, give me this thing you're talking about. Let's let's go there. Tell, Tell me what it is, this living water you're talking about. And then Jesus does what, God does to us so many times out of left field. He says to her, go, call your husband, and come back here. Now, this this wasn't on the agenda of the conversation up to this point. But you know what he just did? He reached in and stuck his finger in her deepest heart. her deepest wound five husbands can't make it work go get your husband bring him back here I think this totally threw her off to where she's now sitting here going why why are you bringing that up why, why did we have to go here? I mean, this was, this was interesting, maybe even fun, till this moment when you reminded me I'm a complete failure. Have you had those moments where you just sit there and say, I apparently am a complete failure? and you feel like God's saying to you, yeah, yeah, you are. It's a very lonely place. Now, she has a choice here. Certainly, uh, by the time you're 25, most women in those, the legal age of marriage was 12, for women, 14 for boys, uh, back, back in those days, both Jew and Greek, Uh, And most women would be married between 15 and 17. So by the time you're mid-20s, if you're not married, there's a problem. There's a stigma associated with it. There's something wrong with your family. There's something wrong with you. Most likely, there's something wrong with both. And she had a choice here. She could just end this right now and say, hey, uh, my husband's out with... The flock, I I can't get them till tonight, so yeah, I'm going to go. She could do that. But I think in her pain, in her wound being stabbed, I think she sat there and went, okay. Okay, Jew boy, you got me. Happy? I'll tell you what I'm like. I don't have a husband. I'm all alone. Is that what you wanted to hear?" And Jesus, I think at this point, for the first time, got excited. And He said to her, oh, you're right. You're being truthful. You're right in saying, I have no husband. Oh, great job. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. You have been completely and totally honest. And and I think this is what he was saying. There she is. That, that is who I came to meet here today. There you are, now. Now we can talk. He saw her. And he kept waiting for the moment he could meet her, and here she was. Now she saw that and said, "Uh, I, I don't know how this is, but this Jew seems to care about me. And one thing's for sure, he sure knows God, or God's talking to him. Something's happening here, because the only way he could know that is if God told him. So now she asks him, well, she says, verse uh, verse 19 here, the woman said to her, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And knowing that she has that audience, with somebody who apparently God is talking to, this is her chance. She's gonna ask the one question she's been wondering. Perhaps her whole life probably started wondering after the first, maybe second marriage where, where the pain was now becoming more real. And here's her question. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, here at Jacob's well and some other places, but you say that in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So here's, here's what she's saying. How do I talk to God? Because... You see, I've really messed up and I keep trying to talk to him and I don't know if he can hear me, but I'm pretty sure if I could just talk to him, maybe, maybe I could talk him into liking me a little bit and he, you know, where do I go? I've been doing it here, but I'm, I'm afraid you Jews are right and he isn't here and I'm all alone. And Jesus says to her woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. Your theology has gotten all bent by the intermarriage and all these Greek gods and everything. You, you don't know really who you're worshiping. We worship what we know. For salvation, God, God kept the Jews and the, the pure theology that he's bringing here, and salvation is gonna come from the Jews, is from the Jews, while well, salvation is standing right there in front of her. She just didn't know it. But the hour is coming and is here right now. And the interesting thing about the text here, it's basically saying the hour is coming And it's actually happening right now, right here between us. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, you know, in truth, like you're being with me, that kind of truth. For the Father is seeking. I know you think you're looking, but I got some good news for you. The Father is looking for you. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He's basically saying to him, to her, you need to know your deepest hope is true. God does hear you. God does see you. And it's better than you thought. You think you're trying to find him and he's seeking you. This you. It's not a place. He desires not a temple of stone, but a temple of flesh. You, to enter into you and to reside in you, and for the worship and the communion and the Holy of Holies to be in you and to emanate from you and out of you. Now. God is seeking us to drop the facade, yet we're real comfortable with the facade. We kind of have perfected the facade, but he's looking for the true you. He's seeking you, not the facade, not the money, not the position, not the exact theology. He's seeking you. Well, the woman said to him, I I think sitting there going, this just sounds too good to be true. I've never heard a Jew talk like this before. Can this be true? She said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, I want to make sure you you know who I'm talking about the one who's called the Christ, the true Messiah. I know he's coming, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all things, and he'll, he'll be the one to verify whether what you're telling me is right or not. And this is, uh, this is kind of amazing, because up to this point, Jesus has not publicly told anybody who he was. And he said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Yeah, the Messiah is going to come and he's standing right here. It's me. So you can rest assured, everything I just told you is true. It's true. And the amazing thing is we look, anybody, especially from the first century, and those of us now looking to it from a little different frame, are looking there going... Wow, Jesus chose to reveal who he was to a Samaritan woman. That's a very unlikely place to go to, to try to find the first mass evangelist. But that's where he went. But it would be a mistake to think he picked her because she was a Samaritan woman. He picked her because it was her. And this is really good news because do you know why he's seeking you? Because you're you. Not because of talent you have, which he gave you anyway, not because of the money you have, which he enabled you to gain anyway, not because of the theology that you've studied and that particular brand that you've held to, because he's the spirit that reveals truth to you, not because of any of those things, but because it's you. There are over 7 billion people in the world, and one thing that's always amazed me, having traveled a lot through the world is that I've never met the same person in two places everybody's unique nobody's exactly the same and do you know why that is because you are unique there is not another you never was been never has been there isn't never will be there's only you and God made you unique and different Because he wants a relationship with you he cannot have with anyone else. So he's seeking you because it's you. Well, verse 27, just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. What is Jesus doing here talking with a woman by himself? But no one said, okay, what are you seeking or why are you talking with her? So I think at that moment, there was a bit of an awkward kind of silence as everybody was looking at each other going, what is going on? And in that moment, it says, so the woman left her water jug and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. She became the first field mass evangelist. And later in the... Now, there's some stuff in between. We don't have time to go over that today. But later, towards the end of the chapter, we learn that the people said hey, you know, when you told us, we believed you. But now that we've actually talked to him, we believe for ourselves. Jesus ended up spending two days with his disciples there in, with those dreaded Sumerians. Healing them, bringing miracles to them, and but most of all, loving them, because they were them. Do you ever wonder if uh, God sees you and knows you? I'm here to tell you he does see you and he does know you. And I don't know what you've done or what you haven't done. I do know this. He's seeking you and he wants you not because of the things you can do for him but because it's you and how does he make that in how does he make that possible because in so many ways we have failed him you know we we tend to think one or two ways either oh i'm so horrible i'm not good for anything and that's I, I, i'm just a failure Or, no, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread and you're lucky to have me around. Both those are evil. Both those are lies. And both those yield things that bring destruction. But if we concentrate on this side first, or at least for this morning, not feeling well, you need to ask yourself, If that's where you are, if you're struggling, does God really see me? Does he like me? Does he want me? I bet you're finding yourself doing some things. You're probably, if that's what you believe, we're we're very powerful in our mind of living out and making true what we believe. So maybe when people try to love you, when God tries to reach out through other people, you don't see it. You don't want it. You miss it. Maybe you even purposely do things to harm yourself physically or socially or mentally or spiritually to prove to the world, see, I'm no good. I can prove it to you. See what I've done to myself? See how mean I am to you? Christ is asking us, As followers of him to see past the facade and see the person. He looks past your facade and he sees you and here's the good news. He wants you, he's after you, and there's nothing you can do to stop him. So how does he make that possible? He makes it possible with this. You see, on the night that he was betrayed, when his closest friends would betray him, would, would deny him, turn their back on him, run away from him, leave him, on that night, he took the bread and he broke it. And for over 1,300 years, the Jews were told, This bread represents the breaking of bondage and the break in the freedom that's coming to you. And and Jesus said, this bread is broken and you know what it is? It's actually my body, the body of the Savior, of the Messiah broken for you. Take this, eat it, consume it, get your strength from me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and the, the Jews were told, look, you can't drink blood from any animal because life is in the blood. And he said, this cup, this cup you've been drinking for over a thousand years, well, it's actually my blood. Poured out, shed in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. Take my blood. Drink it. Let my life flow through your veins. Let me commune with you. I encourage you to take, if you don't have bread and wine with you right now, if you're live, you can't do this, but if you're recorded, pause it. Go get some. Come back. And take the bread. Dip it in the wine and take communion. Commune with him and receive his body and blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord God, that we are free. And Andrew, thank you for that uh, awesome message. Um, Pray you'd believe it, that uh, he's looking for you. Wouldn't surprise me if you found him at your well, you know, that place where you feel like a hole that goes deep down inside you, that you only go when you're alone and, and scared. Believe what he says to you. Gospel. Good news. Believe the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, you'll worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, you'll do exactly um, the right thing. And you'll love doing it. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.